Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day, with a free email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you this week from Beijing, where my co-host Jeremy and I are visiting on an altogether too short stay, at least for me, just three full days, which is not long enough to catch up with my, my friends or to enjoy many of the restaurants that I've missed so badly. Uh, but anyway, it's still great to be back here. Jeremy, how is it... Uh, How's it felt being back in Beijing? Anything catch you off guard so far? Yeah, I, it's great being back. Uh, the thing that caught me off guard is the rise of bike sharing. Uh, I mean, the last time I was here, I think, was about 10 months ago. And mobile. Su- suddenly there are mobile, and there are a few companies. There are these uh, bike sharing bikes everywhere. And it's a system that I haven't seen in the United States where you can basically just leave them anywhere. You don't have to take them back to a, a specific, uh, uh, you know, docking station, and it seems very convenient. Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get up and pedal on one of those. It's a great, it's great. I mean, it seems like traffic isn't as bad as I remember. I don't know. I don't know. I maybe think maybe just, that's just post Spring Festival sloth. Yeah, it uh, could be. What else? Anything else that you've seen that, that that's blown you away? Um, no, well, I mean, you know, Beijing changes. I, I was, uh, I went straight from the airport out to Miyun and the, the, uh, high speed railway to Shenyang is already under construction. You know, my old residence that I lived for many years, Qijiayuan, suddenly there's this huge new skyscraper being built there. I mean, the usual stuff in Beijing, you, you don't go somewhere for six months and then you don't recognize it. Right, right, right. Well, well, today we are going to be talking about nationalism, which is, of course, a perennially interesting topic here in China. As the late Cambridge philosopher Ernest Gellner once said, and you know, he's a guy who knew a thing or two about nationalism as he's regarded as one of its foremost theorists, he said, wherever nationalism has taken root, it has tended to prevail with ease over other modern ideologies. And we're finding this, I mean, it's kind of scary. I mean, Kaiser, you and I both live in the United States and they're the US, um, you know, Britain, France, apparently these bastions of liberalism all seem to be falling, can I say, victim to a a plague of of nationalism. Uh, So we're going to talk about the populist nationalism we now see in the US and Europe, uh, if there's time. But the focus today is on two countries. One, of course, is China, because this is the Seneca podcast. And the other is Russia and especially the peculiar form of nationalism that has taken hold among political elites in Russia today. Yeah, there are a number of very superficial similarities between Russian and Chinese nationalism. You know, the sting of humiliation that's behind, I think, most of the reactive nationalisms of the sort that we saw in the last century. A view of the West as decadent and 
rotten at its core. And China and also the then Soviet Union and maybe to a lesser extent Russia today are, are these giant multi-ethnic de facto empires that were successor states to de jure empires, the Qing and, and the Tsarist empires. But I, I think these parallels are what make the divergences even more interesting and there is a great deal that I think we'll find separating the two forms of nationalism. So we welcome today two of the most knowledgeable people I know on Russian and Chinese nationalism, respectively. Charles Clover is a correspondent with Financial Times here in Beijing, where his beat now is mainly technology, and that's how I know you. Actually, it's now autos. Oh, you've changed that <laughs> yeah, autos. You're I've, not I've doing changed, e-commerce I'm, anymore. I'm not doing e-commerce anymore. I'm doing cars. Oh, uh, congratulations. But, uh, yeah, it's just part of the sort of mix and match kind of rotisserie of beats that we have at the FT. How Actually, funny. Maybe. But but in a former and still quite recent life, you were stationed uh, with the FT in Moscow. And while working there, you were researching and you last year published a book on the rise of of new Russian nationalism. It's called Black Wind, White Snow. And I just recently finished it. And I will talk about it in some depth. A belated congrats on the book. It's terrific. Thank you. That is very nice of you to say that. No, I mean, it's a total, I mean, I have to, it's a total mind f- I have to beep that, but it's I've a total mind I've not heard it f- described that way yet, but um, uh, no. <laughs> I will get into why. There, there's one for the, the back cover. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah. yeah put I'm, I'm going to call up our publisher. We got the paperback. Kaiser Gua, Cynical Podcast, mind f- a total mind. <laughs> That's awesome. No, it's really, uh, that is incredible praise. <laughs> so. so also joining us today is someone our listeners should remember from last year's show on Neo-Maoism, the beautifully named Jew. Blanchette of the conference board who has been working on a book about China's far left nationalists and we are delighted that he could take time to talk with us today. Jude, welcome back to the show. Jeremy, Kaiser, uh, great to be back. Oh, so maybe before we get started, we should try and proffer a definition of what we mean by the word nationalism. At least for me, the word is quite freighted and can't be used in contemporary American English, at least without connotations. It's not just love of country. It has more sort of zero-sum beliefs underpinning it. It connotes kind of stridency and zealotry. It's really more synonymous with jingoism now or chauvinism uh, than it is with just patriotism, which is still relatively value neutral. I, I believe it's certainly entirely possible today to be a patriot without being a nationalist, yes? Yeah. Okay. Right. So I like to think so. Yeah. Nationalism has something. There, there's. There's. The. The essential part of nationalism is is the identification of an enemy. Uh-huh. It's, uh And it's also the idea of some sort of common origin. I think that's something. I think that's a, that's something that that can be absent from patriotism. Right. Some sort so of. So there's vo- a racial volks. component to it. It's ethnic. A, a racial, ethnic, some sort of religious, or some sort of identifier, some sort of common identifier, but a notion of origins is always present. I think. Would you agree with that definition? Then? Yeah. I mean, I I can't do much better than than George Orwell. I think his <laughs> his notes on nationalism. He he splits the two. Sort of patriotism is based on uh, more of an idea of love of 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 place and culture, whereas nationalism. I, I agree. I think. Sort of a, a an exterior threat is 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 if not directly key to it, at least indirectly a, a part of that okay, very definition. Good. So, Charles, your book is really the history uh, of an idea. I mean, it's an intellectual history, really, uh, about the genesis and the transmission of of the notion or the meme of Eurasianism. Many of our listeners will never have heard of Eurasianism and probably have no inkling, I know I didn't, uh, of its importance in Putinist ideology. So can you tell our listeners what the basic tenets of Eurasianism are and how it appears to inform the thinking of uh, Vladimir Putin? Well, 
I, I guess I should start with with a, a bit of a history of how I came across this topic. I mean, I was interested in sort of marginal, wacky coffee house nationalists in, when I was based in Russia, and I met several, and, and a few of them really uh, got me very interested in this topic of Eurasianism, which the key word when you're talking about Eurasianism is, is, is civilization. It's the idea of Russia as a civilization and not a nation, um, and it's, uh, civilization is obviously much bigger than a nation. And it sort of rationalizes in theoretical terms an empire. Um, the way that this is actually uh, transmitted, I mean, what I've, I, I wouldn't want to say that this, that the people that I was writing about actually transmitted this to Putin necessarily. What I'm, what I'm writing about is the, the, the kind of the parallel universe of Kremlin power on the one hand and kind of coffee house you know, cranky guys with beards, uh, you know, sitting in basements churning out pamphlets on the other and they're um, thinking of these terms and writing about these you know using words and concepts that then sort of 20 years later or 50 years later show up in Kremlin speeches and policies and and this this odd coincidence but I've, I've actually found no way in which this this these words I mean it it's not like any of these guys are particularly powerful or, or influential in terms of, uh, you know, there, there's, there's the not... putative power. I mean, but they're, they're there in the corridors, though. I mean, Dugan gets they, pretty high up there. They are. I mean, there there's, he, you know, I mean, Dugan... Alexander Dugan. Yeah, Alexander he's one Dugan of the, is, the what can we call him a protagonist? Yeah, yeah. He's the hero of the book. Um <laughs> He's somebody who I've been, you know, I've been friends with for maybe 15, 20 years, and um, and we've been kind of corresponding, and, and I've been very interested in his project because I thought it was, you know, I mean, he, he just, his, his book actually took my breath away, not for the right reasons, but I just sort of saw something in it that I thought might be important later on, and, and was, but he's not kind of a Rasputin whispering in Putin's ear, he's a kind of an interesting author and, and self-publicist and, and and a public figure, but I, I wouldn't say that he has that any of these guys have any particular direct influence. direct access to to to, to the Kremlin. Um, but so, I mean, is he? Would you say he's a coffee house intellectual whose ideas have currency? Well, yeah, in well, it's more I than that. I mean, because like he was teaching at the academy, right? I mean, yeah, which was, academy? He was teaching at the Academy of the General Staff um, in the 1990s. Um, he's part of a group of people that were identified early on as kind of, you know, there, there was these these sort of dead-ender Soviet hardliners who lost at the end, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And these are sort of generals and uh, party members, and they were looking for a, an ideology of power. And they wound up you know, and 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 these these nationalists that I that I became very interested in were were part of their orbit, and so these people wound up kind of bringing this ideology with them when they came to power. And I think, you know, when when Putin first came to power, he wasn't really a nationalist, and I think he sort of found this kind of nationalism partly because it it just became useful. It, it became useful to him, and it came became useful to the Kremlin. He's more of a Milo Yiannopoulos rather than a Steve Bannon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's. I mean, there, there are there are several Steve Bannons in Moscow, but they don't really believe anything. I wouldn't say um, they tend to sort of latch onto whatever is useful. Um, this this particular philosophy became useful, uh, and and it's an inter and and the the reason is because I think nationalism is, um, you know, nationalism is 
is a ready-made program of political mobilization. It's something that's very easy. If you're, a, if you're a dictator and you want to hold on to power and you're looking to legitimize your rule, you grab nationalism. But nationalism is also simultaneously a, a, it's a, it's a huge source of weakness for states. Charles, can I interrupt you? Because yeah, yeah. I don't think Sorry. we actually properly answered the question, what is okay. Eurasianism? Right, I mean, because it has an ideological comp- dimension to it. I mean, it's not just any old nationalism. This has specific beliefs and tenets. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, Eurasianism is... Um, it's the idea that Russia is a unique civilization. Um, and it's the idea that there are a number of civilizations in the world, and these things are all sort of unique universes with their own values and their own morality and their own culture, cultural codes. And Eurasia, broadly speaking, is the territory of the former Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. And it rationalizes in kind of literary or, or theoretical terms the idea that, that Russia, the essence of Russia, is an empire. Well, it's not part of the Atlanticist power. I mean, it's, it's, it faces yeah. not west toward Europe, but inland toward Central Asia, right? It's, it's that, that Russia is, is, is unique and it's not part of the West. So there are a number of reasons there are a number of reasons that the Kremlin likes this. It 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 this idea that Russia is a separate civilization um, means that um, it's not it's fundamentally unwestern and it's incommensurable. It's something that, that um, you know when the West says, hey you aren't observing human rights and you aren't observing uh, a universal morality, they can say, well we have uh, this isn't uh, you, you know you're using a Western concept on us and well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, it's, it's a very useful. I think the idea of civilization is extremely useful to autocrats uh, everywhere um, to to governments uh, you know and, and dictators all over the planet. It, um, because it, it, it's a ready-made kind of ideological program that shields them from being from from the 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 authority of of, of sort of a Western morality or something. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, it, it fundamentally Eurasia is a form of Russian nationalism which rationalizes an empire. It's it's the idea that Russia has always been an empire. Russia has always had natu- there are natural borders of the Russian Empire, and these are this uh, this entity called Eurasia, uh, which includes Central Asia, the Caucasus, uh, parts of Eastern Europe, and all the way out to the, you know... The Maritimes. Uh, yeah, to, to the, the Pacific Ocean. Um, and so I would say that, that this was latched onto by the Kremlin because it was useful. It, it, was, a, it was nationalism, but it, it, it didn't, um, I mean, Russian nationalism, when it was first tried, resulted in the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. That was the collapse of the empire. And this is, this is a kind of nationalism that, um, that would recreate the empire. Right. So it isn't, uh, you know, narrowly ethnic nationalism. It's not narrowly ethnic nationalism. It's a kind of nationalism as a civilization state. Right. Um, so, sorry, that was way so longer explanation. Let's turn out to, to China, right? And uh, Jude, to tell us, what are the common tenets of, of Chinese nationalism? I mean, by contrast, I mean, my sense is that we can define it by it, the things that it targets, you know, Japan over the Diaoyu Islands, over textbooks, over, over, over Yasukuni Shrine visits. Uh, its targets are secessionists, whether they're Taiwanese or Tibetan or, or from Xinjiang or what have you. Um, it's opposition to liberal interventionism, you know, whether that's the pivot and, and the containment that it's thought to represent. Uh, efforts to destabilize China, to thwart China's rise, the whole hostile media narrative. So it's my sense that Chinese nationalism is pretty easy to understand. I mean, that there's really not much 
to it. Um, is is it, it's just basic reactive nationalism, just a great state brought to its knees by the predations of the European and later the Japanese imperialists. And it seems like it's just built on the simple narrative of national humiliation, kind of never againism, pride in tremendous rebound over the last 30 odd years, great civilizational heritage, blah, blah, blah. Is there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think when I first began uh, researching this topic, that was my general understanding of, of what this was. And it was just national humiliation subsumed most of what nationalism meant in contemporary China. And obviously, when you when you look at any any complex movement like this, and especially start to trace the genealogy, you see the, uh, I think, infinite complexity of, of what it what nationalism or nationalisms uh, are in in China today. Um, and so when we speak of nationalism in, in 2017, I think even in this, in this contemporary time, we need to, um, have a more heterodox definition, um, of what nationalism or nationalisms are. Um, so certainly you have the more simplistic, reactive strain of nationalism, which is focused just on perceived, uh, slights to the, to the Chinese people that, that undoubtedly exists. And that's the one we focus on to, to a great extent, I think, in, in our popular media. Um, but when I look at the, the one sort of wing of nationalism that I know best, which is this more neo, neo Maoist, um, version, you see a, um, I think a much more complex, uh, oftentimes contradictory, but nonetheless continuing conversation on what is China's place in the world. Uh-huh. And there's an attempt on the neo-Maoist, for example, to be grafting China's post-49 political culture and institutions on with a rising, confident China in 2017. And you see that conversation, I think, existing out in the open on uh, in, in websites and in, in online publications and in some of these uh, meetings that they're that they're holding. But what's interesting to me is just how different that nationalism is from, say, the, the nationalism that I think a lot of us studied coming out of the May, you know, the, the, the May Fourth May period, 4th movement, right. the New Culture Movement, uh, the end of the Qing Dynasty. I mean, really, we're talking about two conceptually different understandings of of what uh, of what nationalism uh, it means. It's and not just sort of the negative, reactive nationalism, but it's sort of a more sort of positively assertive. We have a vision that we want to bring to the world, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, j- just a you know, sort of a, a, a potted history, but but I think uh, to to establish sort of a, a benchmark for this is if we're if we're having a, a, a incredibly simplistic definition of what nationalism is. Uh, Pre forty nine, and if we focus on sort of the heyday, which is the end of the nineteenth century uh, up up through, let's say, the founding of the Communist Party in nineteen twenty one, I mean, just an incredibly uh, um, energetic, diverse, heterodox movement of anarchists, Marxists, uh, constitutionalists, liberals, small d Democrats, um, with a, I think, a, as as we had talked about before, a very statist vision, basically, of how do we make China a strong and powerful country. So it's about what is the the little wealth and power wealth thing, and right? power, right. yeah, you know. And and by the way, when I was just walking in downstairs, I saw on the banner outside of the socialist core values. Uh, Fu Chang is yeah, it? yeah. The first one is is wealth and power. That idea is still there, and we're still answering that question. But then you saw, I think, nationalism was much more focused on um, what is what is participatory government look like f- for the Chinese people. What is what does modernity look like? What are the things that we can be bringing in from the outside world? Um, to answer this key question of how do we make China strong and powerful, like like all these other powers which have been colonizing uh, China. And what are some of their answers? I mean, what are some of the things that they think they should be bringing in? How do they think that they can create a participatory 
government. The, obviously, the most famous one was you import the Bolshevik Revolution. Right. Um, and this is what you know, we think of. I think many of us have an idea of what the Communist Party is today, um, but um, a more status quo, more small C conservative. But but in the the late you know in the, the late teens and in, around the founding of 1920 1921, it was really a quite a progressive. Uh, of um, party looking to answer the most um, 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 existential questions for China, um, utilizing the best ideas that they had found internationally. Right. So, so communism was Marxism was was one such answer. You know, you can go to the other spectrum of people like Liang Qichao, Kang Youwei, who were talking rather about constitutional democracy. Right. Um, but all all really trying to answer that same core question right. of of how do we you know wealth and wealth and power. This seems like a, a good time to uh, ask about something. I mean, my sister used to derisively refer to me as a twig or third world groupie because I like to uh, go to developing countries. Um, and certainly <laughs> that, as- that. That's great. <laughs> aspect of my personality certainly drew me to the Chinese Communist Party's slogan of Ya Fei La you know, the Asia, Latin America and Africa unite and um, uh, subvert the American imperialists. Um, but China, and at least before 1991, Russia too, uh, ruled by communist parties that notionally believed in internationalism. They've both had an uneasy relationship with nationalism, encouraging, uh, encouraging it at times and suppressing it at others. Um, nationalism is, nationalism is, really a thing of the right communism is of the left um and charles you write for instance that both andropov and chernenko who served briefly between brezhnev and gorbachev were orthodox internationalists and that neither had any interest in antagonizing the west and realized that russian chauvinism would strengthen the minority nationalist movements that threatened the ussr as as it did yeah uh, yeah so um I, I think a question for both of you but start with you charles who let russian nationalism off its chain and why and after you've answer that maybe jude you could you know speak to uh, the the resonances of this in in china right and maybe continue your little potted history of of, of how, how this happened yeah i mean who let uh, who let russian nationalism off the chain i mean there was i guess the answer would have to be the soviet ethnographers in the 1920s and 30s um created uh a bunch of of nations and autonomous regions, um, and uh, and and the nation, the the sixteen nations that that they sort of artificially created Kazakhstan and Georgia and Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan and, and stuff. Yeah. Uh, these were the only nations that uh, seceded from the Soviet Union in 1990, 1991. So um, who created uh, nationalism? Actually, it was the Soviets. Um, but I mean, that's not really the, 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 the thrust of the question. I mean, the, the, what, what happened in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s um, was a kind of culture war within the Soviet bureaucracy um, where nationalism became a kind of weapon um, to be used against uh, the liberal kind of international or the, the, the sort of the liberal democratic reformers who were judged to be far more of a threat to the state than... Um, Oh, that has to stay on. So, threat to the state, I think. <laughs> All right. 
so uh, let's see. We're uh, so um, the the liberal the liberals were were judged to be the the much greater threat to the state um, than the nationalists, and so. Um, the nationalists, it wasn't like anybody was particularly, you know, it wasn't like the, well, there, there's one theory that nationalists actually took over the Kremlin and and decided to implement nationalism. And then there's another theory that nationalism just kind of came to power by accident, um, that um, it was useful as a way to keep the liberals down. And so to have the liberals and the nationalists fighting was very useful to the sort of the Soviet Orthodox establishment, or the the Soviet establishment, and so, um, so the the they just let um, let the nationalists go to town, and the nationalists just slowly, um, as as you know, Gellner's quote goes um, that that Kaiser you you've uh, mentioned, um, it just wiped the floor with everything else, and that's what happened, and it wasn't it wasn't because the nationalists won, it was because nationalism won. And whenever you let nationalism out of the bag, it tends to do that. And that's the dangerous bit. And so getting national. So so once, um, you know, once the Uzbeks and the Kazakhs and the Georgians uh, and the Moldovans and the Ukrainians had nationalism, the Russians had wanted nationalism as well uh, because they felt like they were being humiliated and they were being kept down by all of these, you know, colonial nationalities and they didn't have their own, the, the Russian. You know, it's it's a basic like in America. Exactly. Not, once the, the, the exactly. blacks have their identity politics and the, the, the gays, the, we whites also. Yeah, want to, right. Exactly. Right. That is exactly. Exactly what is happening in America. Very interesting. It is a replay of um, what happened in the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. Um, and uh, and if you look at death rates in some areas of the U.S., um, it, it's approximating the same. Um, uh, but sorry, it's not alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the, the the same the same social problems you had in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. I'm not predicting anything here, but. Um, Oh, sure we are. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, you know, if if you you can uh, you can draw a pretty pretty good analogy between Trump and Yeltsin. Right. Um, right. They came to power as nationalists, and they came to power as you know. The one was a drunk, and the other's just <clears throat> stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But then uh, the the question becomes, who's the Putin? Right. Well, he, he has yet to emerge, or maybe he's already there. Yeah. You know, with his hands on the the, the strings of the the marionette uh, Jude to you then uh, I mean it strikes me that, that in China nationalists uh, it strikes me that in China nationalist attitudes toward the CCP uh, and toward the party state are generally pretty supportive and that nationalism might have been born in China as we were talking about in opposition to, to the Qing who are of course Manchu and foreign but since the end of the dynasty it seems to me that every ideology that Chinese elites have embraced has been ultimately sort of a means toward a national end and you were talking about that answering the question about wealth and power and so we'd gotten to sort of um, you know the embrace of, of Leninist ideology uh, but I'm actually more curious about what's happened since since the the end of, of Maoism, Qua Maoism, uh, and uh, the, the re- period of reform and opening. Uh, so let's 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 kind of continue along this potted history that you had begun us along, and then skip forward to maybe the post cultural revolution period. Yeah. So the I, this is this is a, a, a cliche, but obviously after the the death of Mao and the beginning of the reform and opening. Um, in the 1980s, you saw a, uh, a search by the, by the Chinese people, by intellectuals, um, to figure out this, again, back to this, this question of, um, um, where's China going? What are the roots of, of, of wealth? What are the roots of power? Uh, but also what are the roots of individual expression? So you saw this really flowering of discussion. And I think it's safe to say that on the whole, um, nationalism wasn't really uh, as present 
uh, in the 1980s um, as people were uh, occupied with other things. Right. Um, but that all came to a, a, a screeching halt, I think, the late, late 80s, early 1990s. So the, the late 1980s, early 1990s, I think, are a really important inflection point for this conversation on, on nationalism and also the answer to this question of, of wealth and power. And I think we're, we're now in a, the conversation about nationalism today is, is really the, the child of this, this pivot in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And the, um, the, the proximate causes of those were uh, 1989 here in, in China and, and then the dissolution of the, the Soviet Union in the late, in, uh, late 1991. Right. And you saw the convergence, I think, of two distinct yet overlapping conversations about where China was going and what the sources of wealth and power were. One was created by the CCP, and that was its answer to why had 89 happened and how do we avoid the fate of the Soviet Union in 1991. And that's where you see the start of the patriotic education campaign, right? So that's much more simplistic narrative about a uh, hundred years of humiliation from the opium war until 1949. It's just the, it's just outside powers invading China and but not such a different narrative than one that had already been heard before, right? S- certainly, but the, vol- the volume is turned it, up right, on this. I think it's right. the the obviously the territorial takings by imperial powers was at the core of really this part of the May Fourth answer to that question of wealth and power. But there was lots of other discussions going on about what are the right technologies and ideologies to be uh, imported Imported, from the outside world. And those obviously fell away uh, after 91, 92. And Jiang Zemin explicitly said, you know, we lost on the education ideological front. This needs to be a core component moving forward. And the CCP needed to find a new source of legitimacy as it recognized the Maoist amblet had lost all of its powers. Mm-hmm. So nationalism, as Charles was saying earlier, nationalism is just a great go-to. I think e- equally as interesting, though, is what was happening at the same time, which is I think for the first time you had an, a re-rise of an organic intellectual conversation about nationalism happening outside of the party or the government. And that's happening amongst in- intellectuals at universities. That's happening by disaffected leftists who had been pushed out of the party, you know, people like Deng Lichun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see the rise of conversation uh, about sort of neoconservatism, about traditionalism. And so instead of nationalism being an open ideology about what are the things from the outside world we can import, whether that's constitutional democracy or whether that's scientific tools or scientific ways of thinking or, or Marxism, it's looking back to what are the, what are the traditional roots of, of Chinese greatness that we can be using and, and bringing, bringing forth. So you really see now a much more conservative looking nationalism. You see a much more, a much more anti-foreign nationalism. You see in the, the mid 1990s, you see a stream of books, you know, China Can Say No, that famous book, which came out in 96. Right. Um, and then I think aggravating this, this budding conversation are a series of external events whether that's the Taiwan Straits crisis of 95, 96, whether that's, that's you know, Beijing losing its first Olympics bid right. for the 2000 Olympics, which was perceived as a slight on China. Sure. And then the last thing I would say, what, which, was, which was helping to act as kindling for this conservative nationalist discussion is China was beginning to, to I think, sow its oats and really start to feel like a stronger, richer, more powerful country in a way that, you know, in the late 80s, there was a sort of an inferiority complex. Sure. They, they, people were traveling abroad and seeing how poor they were. And now all of a sudden, I think China was beginning to see the fruits of this, this reform and opening. A, a key, another key point is you saw Chinese students going abroad and finally having their illusions, illusions shattered, uh, uh, about this mythical place, America. Uh, you know, the, in 96, I think there was a show about a, a foreign guy living in a Beijing 
Beijinger in New York City, I think was the name yeah, of the show. Beijinger yeah. in New York. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and it was about sort of the cultural clashes. That's and right. It was showing a much more realistic picture of what, of, of what America was. So I think you had a confluence of factors around the 1990s, mid-1990s, which, which helped, I think, make a decisive break in terms of the, the, what the mainstream nationalist discourse was going to be. And I think we're living with that legacy today, certainly. With we'll the, see. The well, I mean, we'll, 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 we'll have a conversation in a little bit about how the, the proportion of I mean, how big is this? How loud is it? How, well, can, how mainstream can I ask at this point, then do, do either, you know, the Chinese Communist Party or Putin's uh, United Russia Party, do they actually use the word nationalism? I mean, in Russia, nationalism is a very pejorative word. So nobody actually ever identifies themselves as nationalists in, unless they're like a hardcore skinhead. So actually coming up with the title for my book was quite tricky because like I'm calling people nationalists who identify themselves as, as anti-nationalists. But our definition of nationalism includes a nationalism that, you know, a kind of irredentist nationalism that, that uh, justifies, you know, invading other countries and, and um, identification of other countries as parts of your own country and stuff like that. But uh, in, in Russia, nationalism is basically means racism. So, so it's a very tricky, very slippery term. I mean, I don't know in, in China what... Um, I don't, that doesn't sound too different from in America. I mean, nobody embraces yeah. nationalists unless they're basically Steve Valley. <laughs> it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's something that yeah, it's something that people call each other. But um, yeah, it's not something that you you self-identify as. Right. They think they think they're merely erotic art. We see that they're <laughs> pornography. Right? Yeah. What about China, Jude? Yeah, same. I, I think so. The the, um, the the term that that is used here is is igual, so pa- patriotism. Um, so on the on this nationalist Maoist left, they refer to themselves as Aiguoja or Aiguoshuja, you know, patriotic scholars. They don't use they don't use nationalism. Charles, there's there's something about your book uh, that I I really wanted to, to to ask you about, and I think this is really interesting. And I briefly studied Russia when I was uh, in 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 college for me, but uh, anyway, it was it was uh, something I was I was deeply interested in. But there's much in your book, and this is something I encounter all the time uh, that posits or accepts this idea of a Russian soul. Uh, it's 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 something like I said that I've encountered with great frequency from a lot of people who study Russia or the then Soviet Union, and I can't help but note that if you were to apply that kind of thinking to other people, say the Chinese, uh, it would it would just ring of essentialism. I mean, people you get shouted down for for making these kind of essentialist claims, and so people make these sweeping generalizations. Like early in your book, you you, you quote Isaiah Berlin, who is Russian, yeah, I I, I grant that, <laughs> but he says you must conceive of an astonishingly impressionable society with an unheard of capacity for absorbing ideas. Except he doesn't say it with the same accent. Elsewhere, you speak of a country brimming with ideas and unique in its capacity to get totally carried away by them. And of a native Russian intellectual culture in which the primary aim is to shock and self-publicize. Oh, these are great yeah. quotes. <laughs> now, I'm curious why it seems to be okay to do this when it comes to Russia. Well, the, the Russians love to talk about the Russian soul. So, I mean, I'm, I'm quoting mostly Russians saying a lot of this stuff. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's something it's they, they do get very annoyed when people like me say stuff like this, you know, say that like Russia deserves to be treated differently because they're um, they've got like some sort of essential the Russian soul or something. I mean, I'm not really probably qualified to, that, right. to pronounce upon the Russian soul, but um, Russian, you know, everybody from Dostoevsky on is, is talking about the Russian soul and how. 
you know, and I think Russians are very proud of being unique and um, a little bit inscrutable, you know, mysterious. Uh, it's all through their literature and their poetry of, uh, about, um, you know, this sort of this idea that, that Russia is, is um, that's a Russian term, that's like a, a Russian poem about the, uh, the, the Russian nation cannot be understood. Um, you know, you cannot uh, measure it with yardsticks. Uh, that's another. So we go back to calling the Chinese inscrutable too? Or, yeah. So, what about? I mean, there's like this idea of guozui or guoqin or things like. Uh, is that an analogous notion? Is it embraced by the nationalists in in China that this this Chineseness, this ineffable quality of being Chinese? Not not in the not in the nationalist conversation that that I see. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, especially when we think of the nationalist conversation here, seems less highfalutin intellectual now and more party centric slash action-oriented. So I think it's less abstract in terms of Zhonghua or getting into these, which were certainly notions of, of Sun Yat-sen and the earlier um, nationalists, but seem less to be a defining feature now. Guys, I'd have to actually push back against your notion that people don't talk about some kind of essential Chineseness. Well, I mean, they do, but they you get, hear they get the, the Chinese. The Chinese are this way and that way. I mean, Donald Trump understands the Chinese. He says well, yeah, apartments. I mean, I mean, you hear this all the time. You, you hear it, but not from, from the sinologists. You, I mean, the sinologists, I mean, people who are sort of the, the, the proper China-watching types, we're very conscious of it. We're very careful not to do it. I don't know. Okay, maybe. Maybe maybe you're right. I don't know. Anyway. But, uh, so let's, let, I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of your book. I mean, there, there are a couple of people who sort of carry the torch of Eurasianism. The, the, they, they, they are the kind of bearers of, of the, um, the idea, the meme. Lev Gumilov, Edward Limonov, Alexander Dugin in particular. Oh, let's let's talk about these characters and make sure you you, you get across this sense of how, how utterly bizarre and unlikely these characters are. There, a lot of them are. Uh, I mean, Limonov is particularly fun to have over to dinner. Um, but uh, and and Dugin is is actually a thoroughly nice guy. I gotta say. Um, really? Yeah. Um, but um, my, I mean, the what I've tried to convey. Um, is is how important it is sometimes to pay attention to the kind of the marginal coffee house guys with beards who in Russia in in Russia, but also it turns out pretty much everywhere else, um, oh. <laughs> the Breitbart's of, of the world and the the sort of uh, utopia margin- bookstores in China, <laughs> <laughs> the marginal kind of conspiracy theorists and cranks and stuff. Um, and uh, so I've tried to to paint a picture of some of these guys. I mean Lev Gum- Milyov is easily the most interesting of the people that I wrote about. He's uh, the, the, the son of Anna Akhmatova, who is sort of the Russia's really the greatest poet of the 20th century. She's the his Russian, father's a poet too, right? His father was a poet too. I actually I like I like more than Akhmatova, but but yeah, he was a he was a, a son of a literary dynasty. And he was in gulags for most of his life uh, as a kind of a hostage to his mother's good behavior. I mean, Stalin continued to put him in camps uh, as a kind of way to ensure that Akhmatova didn't go too far off the rails and that she was loyal to. Uh, and and um, and he wound up being kind of twisted by his experience in the gulags, uh, but also inventing a very interesting 
theory of nationalism while you know breaking rocks in uh, Norilsk uh, province and stuff. So um, inventing is right. I mean, the histories that he comes up with have very little to do with actual history, right? I mean, yeah. his history of the Shungnu, for example. Or he, he didn't have any books. <laughs> right, right, that's true. <laughs> and he spent you know fourteen years in gulags. Um, how, he, how old is he? Well, oh, sorry, he's he, um, dead now. He's right? dead. He died in 1992. He's uh, 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 he he is sort of one of these guys, and and they were all sort of like this. They they romanticize pastoral nomads in the kind yeah. of wolf totem way that they do in China, right? Uh, yeah, did you, did you, you know that book, right? Wolf, yeah, right? yeah. Did you, did you see parallels here? With the, you get, uh, I, I mean, it's it's. Uh, he, I mean, Gumilyov was trying to find, uh, he, he was proposing a, a type of nationalism or a type of identity for Russia that, that was fundamentally unwestern and that had, had owed more to Russia, rather than saying that Russia was an outgrowth of the West, that Russia was a, a fundamentally European country that had been hijacked by the Mongols in the, 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 the 13th century. He was saying, he said the opposite, that, that Russia was an extension of, of the Mongol Empire uh, and a, a kind of mystical stepland um, heritage that was fundamentally unwestern and that this was a, a un- this present- provided Russia with this sort of unique I- identity this this you know kind of essence of, of being Russian and it was absolutely fascinating reading he uh, I mean I love his books the Russian literary intelligentsia the in the 1980s loved his books the you know the reason that they were popular is that very few of them had access to real uh, history, but somehow they had access to this. And and this his books are just such a pleasure to read, and most of them are based on kind of very flawed facts and and you know alternative facts as you might put them. <laughs> but and and real historians tend to trash these these uh, books, but they're they're absolutely fascinating to read, and and you actually learn quite a bit from reading them. And so he was the first one to kind of popularize this idea of a mystical Eurasian component to the Russian soul uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. And this was something that, you know, people were kind of looking for anything else. They were so tired of communism by that point that they were looking for any other way to belong, any other identity and uh, anything about, you know, whatever, UFOs, you name it, any 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 of that stuff was popular during the 1980s. And so he, he kind of swept to... to popularity along with with that that kind of craze for in, in that same time so this occultism this, yeah, this fixation exactly. with well, with ufos and and in that hipster coffee house milieu that you, you were talking about other characters emerged like this limonov guy yeah he's he's really interesting too i mean because he was in the states living like a vagrant on the streets but married to like supermodels like you know you know the <laughs> the, the cars the, the band the cars rico k second yeah. their first album the cover the model on the cover you know this like pretty girl with a steering wheel in front of her on the cover that's that's his, his wife his, his first wife. or his second, second wife. wife yeah yeah that's yeah. nuts or no maybe it's his third wife no, I can't second remember. wife I remember oh, okay. it was his second yeah, wife yeah. And, and, and Christ I mean but he was like you know hanging out at CBGB's and, and, and yeah. being part of the punk scene the Ramones and, and stuff um, he was yeah he did but not, he I mean, was a Nazi I mean, but he was like a full blown well, crazy like fascist dude it's, right? it's hard to say I mean I know the guy and he's I I'd struggle to call him a Nazi, though he does sort of <laughs> straight arm salutes. And, yeah, well, and he doesn't he doesn't do that, but they wear armbands that look you know their flag is kind of like the Nazi flag with oh, a little hammer much. and sickle and stuff. It's more in like the like from Pink Floyd's The Wall. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. And actually, um, there's a whole lot in there that reminds me of The Wall. There's just this 
th- th- that sort of approach to fascism, getting to fascism through a deep psych- psychological break. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was, he went through, I think what he went through in the USA, he was a, a writer and, uh, and, a, and, and, and a kind of a cranky guy in general. Um, but he found in the US, he just, he kind of, found that his, you know, the, the way a lot of immigrants in the United States, you know, find their national identities while in in their immigration uh, and then come back and they, they, they love their country even more or they, they, they espouse their, their country's uh, nationality more. Well, their forerunners were all guys in exile, right? I mean, yeah. the white Russians like in, in Central Europe after, after 1917, right? That's right. That's right. So it's, it's all of, a lot of these guys, I mean, um, you know, I mean, Gumilyov and, and Dugan are exceptions, but a lot of the people I wrote about found their Russian uh, identities while in, in uh, while emigres. Um, so that's something uh, that's you know, and, and following a great kind of national or psychological trauma of either the the Russian Civil War or exile or gulag or something. I mean, there's you know, all of these guys had some tremendous catastrophic trauma in their lives that that they were reacting to, and that's sort of how they came to their their beliefs. What are they doing today, Lomonov? And Dugan. Um, so Dugan. Uh, so I, yeah. So Dugan was uh, the, the only. Uh, I was just coming to him. He's um, he's become one of the official media spokesmen for this new brand of Eurasianism. He's um, got uh, you know quite a well-funded website. It looks like um, a very good tra- English translations of his articles. I haven't actually spoken to him since uh, I think 2012. We kind of broke off contact. He broke off contact <laughs> I think because um, he knew you were writing a book about him well he was very I mean, much in it, favor of, of the book I mean mm-hmm. we spoke about it and he knew I was writing and he sat for several interviews and I think he kind of got the uh, he, he you know became aware of the, the the direction I was taking which I didn't think would, would be particularly surprising uh, to him but but uh, you know he, he likes to be written about and he's been you know I've covered him in the past in, in the press and he's not been unhappy with the way we you know even though I call him you know I don't know how serious these guys are. I mean, they're, they're like these pranksters in some... Well, exactly. There's this whole thing. I mean, the one thing that you wrote, which I thought was just fascinating, you write that the Putin-era Kremlin had no interest in creating a new metaphysics. Instead, they subverted an existing one by presenting all politics, particularly the pretensions of liberal universalism, as a self-conscious manipulation. You talk about this, like, ironic, decentered, postmodern intellectual milieu where sort of nothing is... I mean, again, we're the sort of post-truth. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, anyone I, else, you know, doing this? I feel like they kind of, I feel like this whole thing, this whole kind of Trumpism, uh, Steve Bannon thing was explored in Russia, uh, you know, in the middle of the, the last decade uh, before it came to the U.S. It's it's like they, they learned it from us. They learned, you know, their kind of political technology from the West in terms of, you know, using focus groups and polling and messaging and social media and stuff like that. And then they kind of gave it this authority kind of twist where you know they take it's it's like socialism it's exactly what they did to socialism they took this really nice european social philosophy and they made it into this sort of really nasty <laughs> kind of <laughs> instrument of totalitarian rule and then here they did the same thing with postmodern postmodernism they take this this nice kind of uh, french bunch of academics who kind of use this they they talk about power as a or you know knowledge as power and and decentered narratives and and stuff as a way and they're doing it as a way to criticize power 
And here is they take this theory uh, that that is actually fundamentally, you know, originated as a way to criticize power, and they've turned it into a way to to hang on to power. They've, they've turned it into a, an instrument of, of authoritarian rule that Foucault says all knowledge is power. And then like Vladislav Surkov, who's Putin's, you know, sort of spin doctor uh, or until very recently, he says like, yeah, all knowledge is power and we've got the power. So so this is knowledge. <laughs> is it, you, um, how, how, how does this uh, strike you in comparison to similar characters uh, yeah, in, are in there China that you've studied? I mean, the utopia bookstore people seem to me in some ways similar I mean, is Zhou Xiaobo like the the Dugin of China? Or? Yeah, I mean, so I think I would the 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 origins of the of, of the two movements I think share a, a similar overlap in in the sense that both these started at the at the margins of of Chinese society, as you mentioned, with with Utopia as as a as a bookstore, um, and I think both are are navigating the same thicket in this post Cold War era, trying to trying to find a find a way forward. Um, it strikes me after you know in Charles's book, the the characters there I think have a have a much greater level of of profundity than a lot of the folks that I uh, spend my time reading. I think part of that is the the movement here is so wedded to uh, the discourse as set by the party and is always orienting itself and reorienting itself to the party. And the party, um, as you can tell by reading a, a lot of its literature, isn't one where nuance and complexity um, defines what is at the center of that conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a big difference and slash limitation. I, I, I recognize that in terms of, of political tactics, the, the neo-Maoists here have, have much less, I think, much less room to, to work than, than the, the Duganites. Right. So where can they work and how do they actually affect any kind of influence as far as they, they do? And then maybe this is a good time to talk about how much influence they actually do have. Yeah. And, and taking a cue again from Charles, who I think is, is really quite careful in the book to uh, stipulate that it's hard to find the, you know, the uh, actual- Colonel Mustard in the, in the living room with the pipe. <laughs> um, it, it, it's very difficult to do that with the, with the, uh, with the neo-Maoist movement. Um, what you Jeremy, en- did you understand that reference? No. Oh, it's from the board game we all played as kids called Clue. Oh, oh sorry. Okay, okay. Anyway. Oh, the detective game. Sorry, right, yeah. right, okay. right, right, right. Okay. <clears throat> no, no. <laughs> so there is no, there is, there, there is I no. Should, I should have known that actually. <laughs> you know, you haven't seen, you haven't seen Xi Jinping or Wang Huning or Liu He reading, uh, reading the Utopia website, um, or at least that I know. But you, you do see a, a, a lot of dog. Sorry, that's not a great analogy, but you see a lot of dog whistles. Right. Um, and I think they've, they've been evident in building since Xi Jinping came to power. Um, let's, let's talk about dog whistles. I mean, that, that's interesting. I mean, as China watchers, we ought to know what they are. So when he drops certain words in speeches that reference the, the, the writings of the neo-Maoists, I mean, we know what they are when they talk about passionaries or if he talks about Eurasianism at all, we know that's a dog whistle. Geopolitics, right? These are all dog whistles. What about in, in China? Yeah, so the, the it, a lot of it is um, symbolic. So Xi Jinping going to Deng Lichun's Deng Lichun, who is a uh, you could call an arch conservative in the 1980s, right. who fought to for instrumental reasons fought to maintain Mao Zedong's vision for for the country um, and push back against the 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 reform and opening the Deng re- reforms. Um, when he died, Xi Jinping went to his his funeral, which is something that I think for most people would have gone totally unnoticed. Um, but if you are part of a movement for whom Deng Lichun is this is a patron saint or a martyr, um, that that's a that's a very loud dog whistle. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this, the full standing committee on, on the 120th anniversary of Mao of Mao's birth, the whole entire standing uh, committee of the Politburo uh, went to pay their respects in, in in Tiananmen Square last summer. 
famously or infamously, there was a, a red themed uh, opera put on uh, in the Great Hall of the People. Mm-hmm. Um, which, red Detachment of Women, right? The Detachment, right. Which, which there was some confusion at first of was this officially sanctioned or not. For the Neo Maoists, it didn't matter that, that this took place. Xi Jinping gave a famous speech where he, the, the two you, te- you cannot negate. Um, he said, you cannot use the reform and opening period to negate the post-49, so the Mao period, and you, you cannot use the Mao period to negate the reform and opening. A lot of us heard the second part of that, but I think for the for the neo-Maoists to have the leader of China after what had felt like decades of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao and Deng Xiaoping selling out the CCP, allowing capitalists into the CCP, liberalizing the economy, to have someone who is standing up here and essentially winking at them and saying, don't worry, we haven't forgotten about Mao, um, is again taken as a, as a, as a very loud dog whistle. But when you have to be conversant in the esoteria of, of this conversation, um, to, to get, I think. Well, or listen to our podcast or and let you <laughs> drop those insights. Oh, this is why we do this, right, Jeremy? Well, I went to the Red Detachment of Women last summer. I didn't realize I was watching a dog whistle. That was uh, <laughs> pretty awesome. You're hard to see. You couldn't hear like man. You weren't a dog. You ain't a dog. If I could just just add one additional statement on this, because I think it's also relevant, is when we're trying to suss out the power of these movements without without smoking guns, one of the ways that I measure it perfectly or imperfectly is by looking at the extent to which these groups are given free reign. And so if we look at what's happening to, I guess, what you could call the rightist movement or neoliberal, I don't know how you want to want to call it, but Yan Huang Chuncho, the, uh-huh. the, the magazine, uh, Gong Shi Wang, the, uh-huh. uh, the, the website uh, that was known for sort of, um, I, I don't pluralism. know. Pluralism. Pluralism. Sure. Um, and you're seeing organizations like this that are shut down. And what you've seen over for the, for the neo-Maoist movement over the, over the, um, the past three or four years, essentially free, free room to, to run. And I, and I was thinking about this the other day because Trump is occupying so much of all of our minds and this term, the Overton window, the idea of um, That's expanding. Funny, I was just talking about that last night. <laughs> exp- you know, the Overton window is this idea that everything within the Overton window is that which is, is acceptable, acceptable discourse right. in a given in the time. Media, right. And you can you can open the window or expand it, pick your analogy. So in, in the US, you've got the alt-right Steve Bannon, My- Milo Yiannopoulos, who are pushing out the boundaries of, of what is acceptable. So there's, there's more room for, for folks to, who used to be outside of the, outside of the margin to now be considered within it. And I, and I think that the neo-Maoists, what they're doing by the officials here don't need to say anything or give any encouragement for the neo-Maoists to go after a, uh, a university professor, uh, a celebrity, anyone who says anything bad about a martyr, about Mao Zedong. They're there these to historical sort of, nihilists. Historical yeah. nihilists. The, these folks are are doing their best to to push out the Overton window. I don't know if I'm mixing my analogies. No, so, no, no. I mean it makes perfect sense. But my my question is is how ca- carefully calibrated is this on the part of the, the the leadership? Do you think that they have a very clear sense of you know how many more inches they've given the window as they do this? Are, are they are they weighing things very carefully as they? put the screws on 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 Yan Huang Chun Qiu or on Gong Shou Wang are are they how 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 deliberate is this in yeah ways? i don't think it's, it's that calibrated i i think the the reset point for the ccp and and this force of of neo maoists which just incidentally i should add is the only organized political force outside of the ccp in china today you don't see a you don't see a rightist movement building building right. steam. Well, and that in itself is very significant. Yeah, right. I think so. Absolutely. So, um, I think the reset moment was was Bo Xilai. I think that was the first time that they were really taken surprised by the strength, size, and ferocity um, of of this neo Maoist movement. Um, you know, we talked about this on the last program, so I won't rehash it. But 
I think they realized this was a force to be reckoned with, which was going to be difficult to out and out crush. Do they have clear political patrons that you can identify? No. Okay. They, I didn't they, think so. they, they had very clear patrons before. The closest we get now are folks like uh, Zhang Chuanjing, who is the head of the organization department, the uh, HR the department Bureau, for right, the, right. the party during the 1990s. Oh, that's a pretty good person. Hu Ying, who is the daughter of Hu Chaomu, who is with Deng Lichun, a conservative in the. She runs this organization that's called the Children of Yan'an, which is this sort of. Princelings, Princelings left Prince which, Red which there's a, a, a photograph of her and Xi Jinping and Bo Xilai and, and, and Wang Qishan appeared and then disappeared in, in, in the 2008 or 9 I think at one of their picnics um, so so patronage is, is difficult to, to suss out now um, so again what we're looking at is other proxies to measure strength and if you think about on in 2012 when all of these organizations were shut down famously within a couple days now they're allowed much much more free reign in ways Ways that I think defy how we think the rules of politics should work here. If the idea is generically that any organized force will be shut down by the CCP because it poses a potential threat, we, we see much more flexibility in that rule vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the neo-Maoists. They're given much more room to, to, to go. I think, uh, you know, some people have likened them to the brown shirts, you know, in their role for the CCP. I think that's, that's a little hmm. bit provocative, mm -hmm. but... That being said, it does help to conceptualize a little bit of what their role now or potential role could be. They're the, they're the foot soldiers who, without any instruction, know if a, if a professor says anything about Mao, they'll be on the streets the next day. It's called working toward the Fuhrer. So that's, uh. Let's uh, turn back to Russia again. Charles, uh, can you talk a little bit about Russian nationalism today? I mean, particularly since the invasion of Ukraine in, in 2014. Yeah, I mean, um, Russian nationalism was was actually during um, the the later part of the last decade became a very very anti Kremlin force. I mean, I'm talking about the sort of an the ethnic Russian sort of racist skinhead fringe um, sure. part of, of Russian nationalism, um, and they were they actually protested against Putin. There were there were these famous protests in 2011 2012 against right. Putin that mainly liberal mainly protests. liberal. Well, we we wrote that they were mainly liberal, but there was about half and half. Um, there was you know you had sort of. Uh, uh, people in fur coats and iPhones on, on the streets, uh, standing next to um, guys and you know wearing surgical Doc masks and, and Doc Martens and, and Thor Steiner clothes and stuff. Um, so, uh, and and really that divide between the nationalists and Putin was neutralized by the invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and I I do actually wonder to what extent it, the 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 move into Ukraine was motivated by that. Um, you because mean as a sop to them. Yeah, it, it it neutralized that as a political vulnerability for for the Kremlin um, going forward. It, it uh, you know the suddenly Putin is not vulnerable on the question of of covers of, whole right of, flank. of of right. of Russian nationalism, right. um, and uh, and so people. Uh, I mean, his 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 main opponent. Well, his main, he doesn't really have opponents at the moment, but. Um, we got all dead from polonium poisoning. <laughs> That's right. Now, there's one guy named Alexei Navalny who's who's a liberal. He's a liberal nationalist um, who is uh, sort of become the main inspiration for opponents of Putin. I wouldn't say he's necessarily an opponent in the sense that he could win an election against Putin, um, but he's quite a talented guy. But he's um, you know he is a nationalist, and he got his political start by being a. Uh, by being a nationalist and going to something called the Russian March, which is held every year, which is, yeah. uh, you know, where they, they throw Hitler salutes and, and carry flags with all sorts of prohibited symbols on them and stuff like that. 
But now, today, Russian nationalism, it's still as every bit as chaotic as before. It's certainly, you know, I wouldn't say that 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 all Russian nationalists are solidly pro Kremlin, and in fact, there's there's um, you know there's there's one Russian uh, news agency, Sputnik, which is a very nationalist website, which is pretty anti Kremlin, but it's 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 fairly it's actually kind of nuanced, you know. But but what's happened since Ukraine has really been that nationalism has has kind of moved. When when a country fights a war, it becomes very unpatriotic to criticize the leader, and and that's what a, that's what a war does. And, and so suddenly, um, all of these nationalists who were formerly criticizing Putin are now kind of uh, you know they're f- fairly compliant. So yeah, so Ukraine was a pretty smart move. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I mean it it also accomplished I mean a number of strategic objectives, but I mean what it really symbolized was was how political calculation changed. Um, I mean Putin was Putin has always been thought of as a pragmatist in Russia. You know, he's he is a guy who is basically all about power. It's about hanging on to power. And when you're talking about pragmatism in the Russian context like 10 years ago, hanging on to power was well, you maybe say a few nationalist or patriotic things or you you know, have a Mayday parade, or you know, you have some like uh, Soviet flags on when you're having a Victory Day parade or something. But, but really, you're really concerned about Russia's economic relationship with the West because that's really what's going on, and and um, that's what's really important. And suddenly, pragmat the definition of pragmatism has changed utterly, and pragmatism is about seizing Crimea, despite torpedoing your entire economic relationship with the West and your entire trade relationships uh, and, and your whole economy. But it's pragmatic for whatever reason. And and so nobody's nobody's accusing Putin of being an ideologue or, 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 or fronting for some kind of crazy nationalist theory or something. They're, they're all saying, well, this is pragmatic. So nationalism is suddenly pragmatism. That's, that's I guess, what, what the Ukrainian civil war has done. Jeremy, is it time now for the mind f- portion of our podcast uh, I, yeah go go ahead kaiser yeah so i as i, I introduced i mean I, I, having read your book i am um now not sure i understand the world i live in at all <laughs> i mean i i feel like there's no higher praise there's an all, awful lot in there that is devoted to discussion about conspiracy theories about the theories themselves about the prevalence of conspiracy theories in russian life but also about how in an atmosphere where everyone believes in conspiracy they will practice conspiracy there may be they may really be able to get you so i mean there were there were a few things like the the coup in 91 and gorbachev's apparent possible complicity in it Uh, i mean i'm just gonna name things that you seem to actually also kind of believe or or um did we play the u.s play a pretty important role in assisting yeltsin during uh the coup itself and his his response to it giving him signals intelligence and stuff like that Biggest of all was this massive conspiracy that seems to have been around the Second Chechen War about the apartment bombings in September, August, September of 1999, uh, which now, I mean, I you you seem to come down on the idea with the idea the idea that the FSB, you know, the internal security yeah, yeah. folks did this that it was did a false some, flag operation that they blew up, they killed innocent Russians to mm-hmm. drum up support for a war in a second war in Chechnya. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I, I was, I, because I was writing about conspiracy theories, um, I, I did want to point out that there were actually some conspiracies um, going on <laughs> at the same time. I mean, you know, that is one one of the, 
you know, there, there are a number of, of explanations for prevalence of conspiracy theories, uh, and, and one of them is that there are just a lot of conspiracies and stuff. Not all of the conspiracies are real, but yeah, I mean, I think there there are some very solid academics um, who who uh, you know scholars who believe that um, you know Gorbachev may well have been complicit in uh, the 1991 coup. That, that's why he sort of said oh, he hung out and said I had no access to communications exactly. at all, but yeah. he really did. But he really did. He could he he was in a perfect position while he was incommunicado. He could have you know if the coup failed, he could come and say, well, I had nothing to do with that. And if the coup succeeded, he could say, well, I'm the president, so you know. Here I am, but uh, and then the yeah, I mean the, the the apartment bombings. I mean, I think I think a pretty much you know a, a lot of people in in Russia believe that that um, the full story on that has has not been told. Um, I yeah, I I can't. Well, a guy was investigating it mysteriously dies under circumstances. You know, yeah, that, that there resemble polonium poisoning. There's right? a lot of uh, yeah. There are just a lot of evidence that really has never been explained away about this. Now, mitigating against that interpretation, I've actually spoken to a lot of the people who would have been in a position to have been in, you know, part of that conspiracy, including, you know, former chief of staff to Putin and stuff like that. And, and, and I've asked, you know, I've asked them about this and they deny everything and, um, and seemingly pretty convincingly. Um, and, and these are, you know, I, I can't really, explain the evidence that that has been brought forward any other way than that there was some sort of conspiracy but uh on the other hand i have tried to prove it and can't you know i've, I've gotten as far as i've gotten <laughs> and i think other people have gotten as far as they've gotten but no you know putin is never going to say wow okay i did, I did it <laughs> no i don't think so uh, kaiser I, I think you know we're, we're starting to run out of time so i i'd like to suggest that um you ask the question we've discussed that leads off with one of your favorite authors. Yeah, okay, so I've been reading this excellent new book by, by Pankaj Mishra. Uh, it's called Age of Anger, and it's uh, really all about nationalism. And, of course, it dovetails very well with this discussion that we've been having today, and, and I'll, I'll recommend it again at the end of the show here. But to oversimplify his argument, he basically draws a connection between the young and angry men, whether they're you know Russian red-browns or, or they're Chinese jiaozi or, or Italian fascists or Nazis or Trump voters or, indeed, ISIS recruits, uh, and how they're all sort of the heirs of Rousseau, right? These are all these isolated, alienated, restless, frustrated, immiserated mothers. Um, what strikes me about China, about uh, the rapid modernization that we've seen, especially in recent years, I mean, I'm not talking about the early phase of, of, of modernization, but I'm talking about the last 30 years or 30, 30 odd years, uh, it's, it's the relatively low levels of raisonnement. Uh, this is what, what the word that Pankaj Mishra keeps coming to. It's a Rousseau word. You know, it's his catch-all for all this you know these this psychology of the frustrated uh it's just resentment yeah yeah but it makes it a different word so is this because of the effect of repression uh you know that the state's coercive powers are are just sort of um they, they're irresistible or is it that maybe something basic to the psychological makeup of chinese people is it the effective co-optation that the, maybe the the, the fruit um, of of reform and opening has been adequately enough shared that, that it's prevented this, or is it that the ground was maybe so utterly leveled with the Cultural Revolution that the traditionalists or the anti-modernists, these people, I mean, they don't really have a kernel around which to construct a kind of project of of 
my theory is that I think Chinese nationalism is kind of tempered here uh, by a couple of things. By one, you know, the whole tradition of cultural iconoclasm that comes out of the May 4th movement, uh, that, you know, the Chinese nationalism has always been anti-traditional. And it's hard then to create a traditionalist basis for nationalism. Maybe that, that there's this continuing dominance of scientism in the worldview that here. I mean, it's it, it's it's pretty widespread. It's, it, it's there among all the elites. And so, you know, to, to have a sort of passionary kind of romanticist uh, resistance that's, you know, nationalism, which nationalism asks you to to make this irrational commitment to this ethnic idea. It's it's just not easy to take hold in this soil. Uh, there's this absence of strong indigenous religious traditions here. And there isn't a an orthodox church, for example, right? There isn't something like, like that, uh, of course, destroyed by the Cultural Revolution. And even if it hadn't been, there there wasn't a church in China, right? There wasn't this opposite pole of, of power. And then also, you know, the, the internationalism of the CCP's worldview, um, you know, which, again, I mean, we have Xi Jinping at Davos talking about its China's commitment to economic globalization and, and you know, that's always sort of been it, that cosmopolitanism is an opposite pole from nationalism. And then maybe overarching all of this stuff is this this, this embrace that, that's common to most Chinese people of, of this the religion of development. That, you know, they, they've always believed that, that, that it's ying dali, right? The fa zhan shi ying dali. It's a, you know, it's, 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 how do you... Pre- if you make economic progress, that, that is everything. Right, right. You don't it's, need it's, to have theories as long as people are getting richer. And, then, you know, yeah. and China doesn't have that re- Russian penchant for, I almost said penchant, uh, this Russian penchant for, for, for theory. I mean, you said you have this sort of simple... So what's the question, Kaiser? No, so questions, no, I'm, 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 what's your take on this, Jude? I mean, do you think that nationalism is something that, that is of tremendous consequence here at all? Or is it is it really kind of always going to be on the margins and, and they, sure, it'll it'll show up in the patriotic education stuff. It'll show up in, um, you know, there'll, there'll be, you know, pains to it. And, and of course, all Chinese kind of believe in this exceptionalism, but but taking a form like it has in Russia, I don't see it happening. Yeah, and I think, um, having not read the book, but but I, I, I think when we talk about nationalism, we, we can, I think generally when you use the term, when we talk about nationalism in China, we're talking about more of sort of a mass nationalism. Um, we're talking about added, you know the the angry youth. Um, we're talking about uh, st- you know, student, you know, the anti-Japanese uh, protests. So in that sense, I mean, it is a really important important part of of I think um, w- what's transpiring in China today. Although I don't know if any people who saw that uh, new study released by I saw it. it was just Beijing though. I mean, it was just but but in, he, as he says in the study. So this was a study by um, uh, Alistair Ian Johnston, right. who's at Harvard who uh, did this um, survey of, of nationalist attitudes, nationalist among attitudes and found that they weren't essentially as it wasn't rising in the way that you see a, a meme that, it, that has existed over the past couple of years about sort of rising nationalism in China. And, and as he, he mentions the limitation of that, the sur- su- survey sample is, is just in Beijing, but, but he also mentions that it does jibe with other studies that have been done nation, nationwide. But at least it calls into question just the extent to which this mass nationalist phenomenon But we want your exists. book to sell too, so yeah. let's, let's, let's <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll edit out this whole section. <laughs> so I, I, so I, I say, but this is not a great answer to question. But I think it, it is, it is incredibly important um, in in the sense that it is one of the ways that we, as a lens, think about China and China's rise. Um, I think looking at the attitudes of of Chinese when they go overseas. 
um, and in many cases take on a more nationalist identity, more awareness of, of these nationalist issues. Um, it's clearly, you know, incredibly important. And it's unlike with the Duganites or even the sort of Neo-Maoists, which takes a much more, I think, obscurantist, marginal um, um, philosophy. I think just mass nationalism, this angry nationalism, I think is, is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, I, I would certainly agree. I just, it's always hard to get a sense of the proportions of it, though. I mean, we focus on it. I don't know. I mean, is it's, yeah, it's, it's there, certainly. I mean, you see it in, in WeChat, you see it on, on Weibo, but it's always hard to get a sense of how, how much it really affects the sort of general worldview. Anyway. Uh, Charles Clover and Jude Blanchett, uh, thanks once again for taking the time to chat with us. Again, Charles's book is called Black Wind, White Snow, The Rise of the New Russian Nationalism, and I highly recommend it to, and to anyone who's interested in the politics of that part of the world, or really, and again, I mean, it's it's just, it's a very gratifying read. I mean, it, it's a, it's structured really great. I love it. Uh, loved it. And it's a mindfuck. It is a mindfuck, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's my... Thank you. Thank you so much. I get to blurb your next book, right? <laughs> Jude, uh, what is your book? And I mean, wh- how are you doing? You coming along with this? It's it's coming. Uh, I didn't realize that it actually takes sitting down for sustained amount yeah, of that's, hours. You got to write it. You got to actually write yeah. the book yeah. that you're writing. Yeah. Well, talk about it enough on the podcast, and you'll have material. You just transcribe. Anyway, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at at SupChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news if you like the cynical podcast by all means go leave us a positive review on the apple app store or on google play or wherever it is that you go to review apps this really helps us and it really does mean an awful lot to us now on to recommendations jeremy what do you have for us uh, I'd like to recommend a piece called The Age of Total Lies. Uh, it's a translation of an essay by the Serbian uh, opposition politician and human rights activist Vesna Pesic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that Pesic. correctly. Pesic. Um, and a Q&A with her by Charles Simic. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, the New York Review of Books. And it's a particularly interesting reading it, you know, when living as I do in, in you know, the land of total lies, <laughs> <laughs> the divided states of Trumpistan. So uh, really great little piece. I was joking the other day about how you you know it's really bad when you find yourself rooting for the deep state, which is what I am. I, I am I'm, I'm rooting for the deep state. Like, please, no. Putin. Uh, Jude, what do you have for us? So I, uh, one book and then one small thing. The small thing is um, I just want to recommend that everyone read Trump's tweet from yesterday on illegal criminals and just contemplate the fact that. Right. That's As opposed to the legal ones. That the president, who is uh, self-reputedly the, the smartest man in the world, uh, wrote that. And But more substantively, I'd, I'd like to recommend, and, and um, my former boss, Susan Shirk, wrote an uh, incredible book, which I just recently read, called The Political Logic of Economic Reform in China, which oh, was wow. published in, I think, 91, 92, which looked at the way that, um, the again, the political logic of, of how the reform process was uh, uh, um, unveiled and how it worked in China. But I think it, as we look to where reform stands today and why hasn't reform happened or what's going to happen after the 19th Party Congress, and as we as we think through these questions, I think a, a good um, 
um, historical look uh, at how it has happened previously and what are the prerequisites for reform, what are the difficulties it will face, um, how much maneuvering Deng and his allies had to do to get through some of these reforms will be uh, incredibly important. So um, it should be available in used version. Um, cool. Any, we'll any good online is, there, is anyone writing the follow-up that's the economic logic of political reform? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe, I think Joe Fusmith did had a book that came out uh, last year. Oh, really? On, on, yeah. And, and, and specifically uh, about on, that? On the, on the logic of political reform in China. Right, right, right. Good, good, good. Fusmith's great. Yeah, I should uh, check that one out. Charles, are you ready with one? I am. Yeah. Um, my FT colleague, Gideon Rockman, wrote a book uh, called Easternization uh, last year, and it's I, I had a chance to read it on vacation, and it's actually really excellent. Um, it's... Uh, it basically takes as a, as a given the rise of China and the rise of Asia overall as a new power center in the world, um, but it goes around the world and describes how what's happening in like Turkey or the Middle East or Russia or even America is is actually a function of, of this the rise of, of Asia and the rise of China. Um, and it's actually, and it's, and it's a really, it's a very nice introduction to, to, to Chinese foreign policy, which um, I, you know, I'm, I'm still at sort of the beginner level here, but um, I, I thought it's a very well-written book and, um, and has a really interesting argument. Oh wow! Yeah, I've always enjoyed his columns. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's a really a, nice guy. He's a very very nice guy and with him, um, extremely good writer. Excellent, excellent. Uh, ready for mine? Okay, so mine are two of them. One of them uh, is, of course, the Age of Anger by Pankaj Mishra, which I've already talked about. Um, I'm about three fourths of the way done with it right now. It's just great. The guy is just an amazing writer and his command of, of the historical sources is just tremendous so it's very much worth reading especially for you two gentlemen I mean I think it, and Jeremy has already vowed to read it yeah yes. yeah okay good uh, the other is the 1987 film called Repentance by Tengiz Abuladza. Did you ever see that film? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it's a Georgian filmmaker this guy uh, and it's just basically a, a called parable or an allegory or something like that um, about Stalinism yeah uh, it takes place in a Georgian village with this sort of petty tyrant local dictator um, with that sort of uh, horrifying arbitrariness that that sort of you know um, affection that he'll show you this kind of avuncular affection and then suddenly like this viciousness it's it, it really captures the kind of feeling of, of living under uh, that kind of dictatorship and of course it's very very relevant to anyone who studied China especially in, in the Mao period as well so thanks guys Thank wow. you. Thank you. So wonderful. Uh, once again, um, we very much look forward to your book. And uh, Charles, once again, congrats on, on yours. Um, and thank you to Matt Forney for providing us with the studio. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Uh, and, you know, when are we going to get you on the show, buddy? Uh, anyway, we we'll, next time we're going to, we will talk to you about automobiles in, in China or something else that's relatively <laughs> free of bizarre conspiracy theories and less apt to get you actually poisoned with some rare radioactive isotope. <laughs> Careful. I'm available for autos, you know. <laughs> autos one, I'm there. I know some lady bodyguards who have some free time now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how Rachel's going to feel about that. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks to Anla Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.